Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 121. I am your host, as always, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey everyone. And Grail. Happy Halloween. It is a spooky, spooktacular <laughs> episode. Woo! And um, yeah, we're it's recording this the day before Halloween. I have Halloween parties to go to tonight, and so it's going to be a quick, fun, off-script, mostly, uh, episode where we're just going to go around the table here, the uh, podcast table, that is, and talk about the scenes that stick out to us from Berserk uh, that really seem spooky, the spookiest. Now, spooky, it's not as hard-hitting as, like, terrifying, right? Most of Berserk is terrifying. So when we say spooky, we're being tongue-in-cheek here because there's some scary shit in here. So <laughs> uh, just keep it that in mind. What, before I get started, what do you guys usually do for Halloween? We got some time and we got a little bit of time to do personal stuff. Oh. What do you usually do for Halloween, Azil? I have no idea. Is that, does France. Halloween exist in, bear, in, in French? No, Halloween is not uh, a thing in France. So <laughs> nothing is done for Halloween. I'm not going to any parties. I'm not dressed up uh, in some morning costume. I'm just, I'm just thinking of the dead people. Which I lost, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we don't we don't do any of this uh, of this stuff here. It's just uh, I think it's an uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, holiday specifically, and that took off in the U.S. Mm. And for like the past I don't know thirty years, they've tried to bring it here because commercially there's a lot of potential, right? Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just it, it doesn't work. So sometimes you'll have. Uh, a group of parents who are like, "Hey, let's do a Halloween thing," as have their kids ringing bells. And uh, I'll just annoying hand, everybody. Yeah, I'll just hand, hand them out some pears I have, or you know, bananas. Hey, yeah. Oh wow. no, you're the fruit guy. Oh. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm kidding, but yeah, I I don't. Uh, we we just it's just not a thing here. But okay. uh, in Europe, they do have All Saints Day because it's connected to Christianity, right? I'm exactly. Guessing. Yeah. So that's what I was saying about the dead people. Is uh, it's not. Actually, it's on Monday, uh, but yeah, we have All Saints Day, and people go to the cemetery and uh, clean up the graves. Uh, oh, that's, that's productive. That's a nice tradition. Well, I mean, that's what old people do, uh, but yeah, I'm not doing any of the shit. On Monday, I'm just going to mm. be playing the Switch in bed. <laughs> so, yeah, that's Sounds my like life. A, that's, a, <laughs> that's a nice tradition, though. Like, here, we just get trashed, and we eat shit with candy. And it's an That's a better tradition. And, and, and we don't visit our relatives. Not at all. Let me no, tell no, you, when I was 18, I wished I could have seen a slutty nurse costume and uh, whatever <laughs> other things you guys got. And uh, I am actually the one who's jealous of your Halloween mm. stuff, where every chick's costume is slutty, so-and-so, slutty, this and that. Man, I don't know that that's here. true. You're really leaning into the slutty thing. I don't... I've been to several Halloween parties. I can count on my hand maybe the number of slutty costumes I've seen. Maybe I'm going to the wrong parties, though. You're breaking my heart. No, I, honestly, <laughs> I uh, I really don't know much about uh, about this stuff. All I know is what I've seen online, which might explain the slutty aspect. Uh, but yeah, I honestly, I don't know. Well, I'll take what we whatever we can get as far as being enviable to other countries. So I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah, say, really. yes, all our slutty nurses are here. I mean, I would say I kind of understand that it's it's a modern tradition relatively, right? I mean, we have kind of absorbed it like we usually do uh, in yeah. America. We absorbed it from various things. And also, I think, you know, the Mars company, the producer of Snickers bars and M&Ms probably mm -hmm. had a, a lot to say about how this was culturally accepted. Uh, <laughs> right. Buy your so, shit. It's buy like your Valentine's shit. Day. <laughs> yeah. Mother's Day, Father's Day, Valentine's Day. It's all like, I'll buy this, buy it's that. It's all Mars company stuff. Yeah. I would say it's hard to swing culture but apparently it's pretty easy you just put a bunch of you know you have the potential for cute kids that's one facet of it right parents are eager to have kids be cute mm -hmm. it's an opportunity to do that and it's an opportunity to just fucking pick out which is really that's an american tradition that's isn't that what you do at thanksgiving well that's too that's that happens in 26 days <laughs> or something like that we're gonna get that later yeah i know but okay i i didn't know halloween was uh picking out uh 
day as well. And then a month later, we do it basically Thanksgiving again. In general, we just eat a shitload of food on Christmas as well. So it's just a bunch of picking out. So we out. eat and we eat and we eat. And then the next day we feel terrible about it. And that's mm-hmm. when uh, New Year's resolution comes up. And then the diet industry comes in and picks up. That's right. Then you feel guilty about it. Yeah. Now you got to be um, hot for summer. So you got to diet and exercise. I got to get a six pack. <laughs> so myself, I went door to door most of my life. Most of my life. That's not fucking true. My childhood. <laughs> door to door salesman. <laughs> yeah. Tw- 29 years old. Trick or treat. S- selling encyclopedias. I remember a high- freshman in high school, me and some friends went trick or treating just like ironically to see if we could get candy. And it still worked, even though we were 14, 15 years old. That was pushing it, though. Even yeah, sarcastic. I, I did the same thing. It was <laughs> looking back, I was like, come on. <laughs> Let the little kids have more stuff. <laughs> yeah, pretty lame. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, I didn't give a shit about Halloween after age 13 or so until you have kids and then it's an opportunity to dress them up in fun stuff and they get really excited about it too. So like this Halloween, my son really wanted to be Spider-Man. So he has a full Spider-Man costume. We bought, we bought Silly String for web shooters. Nice. Oh, and I got a Miles Morales like top. So I'm wearing the Miles Morales Spider-Man outfit. I wanted to be Venom, but I think it's due to the movie. All those costumes are sold out, so that impossible to find any Venom costumes, mm. which is too bad. Yes, yeah. uh, but I don't really care about the thing itself. Candy? I don't really even care about candy. Not really candy person. Um, I like donuts. There's no holiday for donuts, unfortunately, though. But uh, I like seeing my kids do cute stuff, so that's why I like it. That's a plus. Cool. But like, uh, uh, are you going to a costume party later? You mentioned we are. Yeah, in about two hours. Yeah. So is it just the kids getting dressed up or parents as well? I think I'm supposed to go in costume as well, yes. All right. But I don't have a mask or anything. It's really just yeah. a shirt and a hoodie. Now that I think of it, we do have costume parties in France. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Not tied to Halloween or anything, but uh, we, we do that. And I've done it uh, a few times in my life. So actually, I shouldn't be complaining. I, I always hated that too. So really, I'm, I'm just glad there's no Halloween here, actually. Hmm. What's your favorite... Grail, because you've done the costume thing. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite Halloween costume that you've performed in? Not performed in. Uh, made. Bought. Whatever. Yeah. I, I The one that I put the most time into was a Morticia Adams costume that I did with Gobble He He did Ooh. Gomez Adams, and we, we dressed nice. him. Oh, that's great. We, we took one terrible picture outside of a friend's house. It was dark, and we didn't have flash. So we just sort of <laughs> like, uh, I'll, I'll have to send a picture later. But that one is the most time I've ever spent. I did like a full face of makeup, and I never wear makeup, so it was very difficult. But I liked how it turned out. <laughs> it was fun. Nice. But in general, I don't have children, so I just enjoy Halloween for, like, the nostalgia of it. I'm going to some friend's house tomorrow to hand out candy to kids, and uh, I'm going to live vicariously through them. Cool. Very good. Let me tell you one thing. Yeah, because I I do have one costume party, which uh, I think was nice. Uh, I went as a perverted priest, and Pula went as a, a witch, basically. So she had, like, a a hugely long, dark uh, cloak. And she was wearing, you know, white makeup and that kind of stuff. That was pretty cool. And uh, I, I, like, I bought a cheap Bible, but a nice one because they're so desperate to hand out Bibles. You know, even the cheap ones uh, will be nice. And I, I, like, bought um, like a no, I didn't buy, but I, I got the equivalent of a Sears magazine uh, that you guys have. We have something similar here where they'll sell tons of shit, and they used to hand out these huge. Um, catalogs basically to get you to mm-hmm. buy by phone because you know I'm, I mean before the internet, and yeah. so and I uh, cut out pictures of little kids, uh, you know, playing in that, and I glued them in the Bible. In the Bible, yeah. dude. <laughs> and so I shouldn't be saying that because uh, that's not very respectful for Christian people. But anyway, and so and I went. I guess you like Halloween for the kids too. And and I went as a party, so it was just an, an adult party. I don't think uh, there yeah. were kids there. And uh, people were like, "Oh, you're a priest, whatever." And I was like, "Yeah, sure." And I was showing them my my Bible, and they were like, "Oh, gross." And I won <laughs> I won best costume of the night. So that's it. I was gonna say you really tapped into the Halloween spirit. Yeah, I actually I, I bought a nice uh, crucifix, which I've still got in wood, and all that stuff for like uh, two dollars. It was uh, oh very God. cheap, so. And at the time of my of my life it was a great night. That's great. When nice. you described yourself 
as a perverted priest and they said you had a, a cheap Bible, I really thought you were going to cut a hole in the center of that Bible and just like really go all the way with the perverted <laughs> priest thing. I really yeah. didn't think that's where you were going with that. Yeah, I mean, I could have uh, tried to stick a, like a flask of uh, whiskey inside of it or something, but eh. That wasn't quite what I was going for. Uh, yeah, I know, but yeah, no, okay. uh, no, I mean, no, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not, absolutely not. <laughs> My favorite costume is in 2003, um, right before Halloween, there was this outrage in baseball because this Chicago Cubs fan, I, I don't remember his name. I think it was Bart something, Bart, Bartville, Bart, maybe Bartman, Bartman sounds right. Uh, he had caught a, a ball that was in the outfield. It was going to get caught by their, the Cubs outfielder. Oh. But, you know, being a fan right there, he snatched it away from wow. the baseball player. The That's Cubs fan no-no. snatched it from the Cub got, <laughs> got the player. Uh-oh. And he ended up costing them the game. Um, oh. And they were about to go to the National League. Which oh. they, if they won that, would have gone to the World Series. So, as you can imagine, that's a terrifying moment for Cubs fans. So, I dressed as Bartman. Uh, oh, when, 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 when that's pretty Halloween. scary. Yeah, that was my favorite. That's a scary costume. Poor Cubs. Indeed. That's some good banter back and forth. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, I don't, I've been talking a lot as well. So, I want to open the floor up to our spookiest moments in Berserk. Starting with Zeal. Go ahead, lay out your first uh, spooky moment. I guess uh, I'm going to start with the bottom, uh, and that's uh, the OG to me, which is uh, Beherit's reveal at Vargas's place, uh, which happens at the end of Volume 2 and beginning of Volume 3. Uh, why is it scary? Well, you enter a dark laboratory filled with specimens in jars. Vargas is revealed to be horrifyingly disfigured. Uh, Gus plays it tough, but when he sees the Beherit in the hidden back room, it's actually he's shook, you know. Uh, I'm talking like young people. He's shook, man. Um, <laughs> we get a flashback of uh, what the Count did to Vargas and that shot of him, uh, you know, half transformed when he swallows. Uh, he's like swallowing a manhole. I think that's Vargas' son or something. And he's a half transformed into a snail form. I mean, that's fucking... That's, to me, one of the most horrifying shots in the, in the series. It's pretty horrible. And as it ends, of course, we get our first glimpse of the eclipse. Black Sun and the God Hand, uh, we see the shadows. So definitely it had to be in my top five. Wow. Wow. As you got mine, you got my first one too. Oh, wow. Damn. That's a great one. I wanted to do something from the Black Swordsman arc because it's such an under, under spoken arc. I feel like people don't talk about it. Yeah. That's crazy because I saw this one. I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure neither Walter nor Grail would get it. And I guess I was wrong. You Sorry, sorry to steal it from you. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'll, I got another one lined up after that. What, what did you have to, what did you have on it, Grail? Can, can you detail? Is it the same as well, me or other parts? Specifically, I really uh, was spooked out by the, by the part where the, the count is like eating the body half yeah. transformed. And then. <laughs> The, and then Vargas has to watch. I'm just like, that's so freaky. Uh, I, I love that whole scene because it really does set the scene for like, this is this is going to have some messed up shit going on in this vault, you guys. And, <laughs> and it really, really, I used to have nightmares about Berserk when I first started reading it. And I think this volume was responsible for a lot of it. Damn. Uh, I feel like a, a runner up in this volume is uh, Zondark and how he kind of, Gets um, monstrified. Monstrified is a good word to use. Monstrified <laughs> by by the count. It just it's so gross. His little his little mini me slug comes crawling out of his mouth and just mm-hmm. like ah. Uh, and then the next time you see him, he's he's like a zombie. So that that's really creepy to me. Because the count is you know effectively possessing him, he's also like smiling during the disfigurement, like in that yeah. in that scene, from uh. what I remember. Just terrible, yeah. I, it's it's really really creepy. He's like got this smug smile on his face for the entire volume, mm-hmm. and uh, it's really terrifying. He's such a great character. So, yeah, the I slug enjoy. specifically the slug scene uh, when you come out of the mouth and it's a it's got his little face on it too, and then yeah, like- <laughs> he's so happy, this happy little guy in his mouth. <laughs> that's fucking crazy. Yeah, that's that's a great one too. Uh, mine's sort of related to that. Uh, so mine is from volume 11. The episode is Demon Dogs. I think it's part one. 
It's uh, really, it's it's a particular scene with Vyald, but really, if you kind of lump them together, they all kind of have the same effect. And that is basically the sudden terror that Vyald induces when his scenes because of his basically complete, he's like a storm of violence whenever he yeah. unleashes his powers. You know, the first thing was Barbo whenever he basically just, something happens in the midst of the crowd. It basically probably uppercuts the big fat guy and he ends up speared on top of the tower. You don't see what happens, but it's really just this sudden violence and like the crazy things that happen in, in his wake. You know, there's a scene in that directly following that when the king is reflecting back on what that his, you know, group is, is capable of. And you just see like, you know, terrible things happening in the background. But the one scene I'm really thinking about though, is of course, when Wild comes to knocking on the door of the, um, the little peasant little yeah. village that had just finished saying goodbye to the Falcons, sending them on their way happily, nice, cute family. And then like three pages later, they are literally in pieces and being thrown into the fire and yeah, uh, that whole scene and just, it's the suddenness of it. Mm-hmm. And it's the, like the storm of violence that happens like at the snap of a fingers is terrifying and, you know, kind of a hint uh, of, of things to come, but it's sort of unprecedented how quickly that chaos happens uh, mm-hmm. that, at that point in the series anyway. Yeah. As readers, we don't get much of a break during that period. And that's mm-hmm. wild is, is just, uh, is, is really the cherry on top of the cake. Yeah, and I said it was related because to me it's similar to what the count does to humans. It's it's that you know it's the supernatural meeting the you know, the mortal world and like what that can what does that mean for humans if they get caught in that you know supernatural blender you know they yeah. either get devoured or cut into pieces and raped or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, one of the things that always struck me with uh, that whole chasing with wild is that. You really feel the pressure, uh, as Japanese people would say, the tension that Guts knows he's one of them. He's like Zod. He's that mm-hmm. kind of monster. And, uh, you've got several scenes where there's a one where you see his face from the side in, uh, you know, blackened, uh, on a full page. Uh, there's a scene when they, they drop the rock and he just punches through it. And then when, for example, Guts, uh, swings at him, uh, slashes him in the face, and he blocks the sword with his teeth. And mm-hmm. um, while that's not like uh, pure horror from the typical sense of it, you just get that sense of dread uh, in your belly, which is like, how are they going to get through this? Because that's a fucking monster. And, uh, you know, even if they beat him in that form, he's going to transform, and then... Uh, she's gonna go bad quickly, and of course that's what happens. And we see that guts manages to triumph, but uh, it's a really harrowing uh, sequence of events to me. Yeah, Grail, you want to go? Sure. Um, I I just realized that my my list does kind of culminate in into it. Oh, good. I'm glad list. somebody's go, go does. It's, I, I, this is my my second pick, which is Casca uh, on the outskirts of the Albion encampment in Volume 18. Um, this is oh, yeah. when, um, uh, around the time that, that Nina is lamenting her fate and, and, you know, realizing that, or noticing the, the drop of blood in the water uh, shortly afterwards, Casca is, as Elaine is, is just kind of standing there and there's that sequence of panels where you see the, the rotten hand coming up. Far, just far enough away from them to be unnoticed, but still there. This this uh, rotting hand of a corpse, where uh, all these corpses start crawling towards them slowly. They don't even notice them, but you, we, the reader, are are witnessing it. So that that like as was saying, that pressure, that tension is building, and as that's happening, we see somebody's watching them, and that's of course the egg apostle, and then. As that's all happening, so we're we're going through like, oh my god, is Casa Nina gonna be okay? The demon child pops up and and uh, you know, I guess dispels the ghosts and, yeah. and forces them to leave the bodies. But we have this feeling of the egg apostle watching, and I love this scene because it just makes me. It, I remember reading it, and I could not turn the pages fast enough. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god, what is gonna happen here? And this this whole part of the story is very tense, and, and the egg apostle. In addition to that, that there are so many moments with the, you know, the the 
the skinned priest and stuff like that. Just just really creepy moments where there's no explanation. We, the reader, for once, don't really know what's happening more than the characters do. And when we finally get that reveal, it's so, so cool and satisfying. So this was, this was a moment that really stood out to me because Casca is such a vulnerable character. And she's with Nina, who's obviously also, you know, not doing so well herself. And they had no way to combat these ghosts or, or the zombies, basically. And the way that they're depicted is is very, you know, uh, viscerally uncomfortable. Yeah. So it just, it's that feeling of dread where you're never safe in this mm-hmm. in this part of the story. For me, there are two things in that scene that I think uh, really hammered down. Is the first what you mentioned, Casca is extremely vulnerable, so that even just evil spirits that aren't much of a threat to guts. Well, they're a deadly threat to her. So we obviously riveted to know how she's going to get through it. And the other one is that as the scene ends, you see that uh, those eyes of the Beherit Apostle watching over them. And that's like, okay, so as this all was unfolding, uh, another force, a greater force was watching silently. And you know that it's a threat. So even though it ends uh, the good way with the demon child uh, dispelling the, the spirits, uh, you know the threat is not right. over. It's still there. Exactly. And it, like you guys were saying, it's that feeling of dread that builds up throughout this part of the story that culminates. is really interesting to me. Yeah, we, me and Azia were just talking about that scene, and it's a it's a, a definitely good one. I like how we, uh, around those scenes, the panels also go black, setting the atmosphere for that scene. Happens a couple times, I think. Very effective, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually had not thought about it, and I don't think we spoke about it specifically on the podcast for the reread, but it's one of those things that's implicit uh, if you're reading it. But yeah, the, the fact that Casca is all on her own, she doesn't have guts to protect her. Uh, and yeah, it makes the scene more terrifying because there's no, there's no savior, at least on the horizon. Of course, one appears, but yeah, you don't know how they're going to extricate themselves from this. And it, it, you know, it it implies or alludes to the fact that this has probably happened many times, uh, throughout Casca's journeys by herself away from the cave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, back to you, Azil, for the next one. All right. So my next one is Roshin's Nest at the end of volume 15. Uh, so it starts with Jill witnessing the fake elves play war and is just dreadful in every way. Uh, from the juxtaposition of these cute elves, I'm doing air quotes here for cute, uh, <laughs> murdering each other to them reverting to their human child selves as corpses, uh, not to mention their mimicking of rape and their cannibalism after they kill each other. So it's like the, <laughs> the full thing. <laughs> Uh, and then it gets worse as she runs off and enters the forest and finds the cocoons where the children are transformed and she sees Roshin's true face as she kind of mesmerizes her into uh, getting agreeing to, to that. Uh, and of course, this afterwards leads to her battle against guts, uh, which is also quite a ride. But to me, uh, that scene of the little war with the children and then the cocoons is just like, it's really atmospheric. Um, that forest of cocoons specifically, I mean, it feels like it's just, I don't know, very frightening to me. Very, again, like you feel the pressure. Jill is vulnerable. Same thing. She's just with Puck. There's no one to save her until Guts arrives. And you can tell. I mean, you see uh, Roshin's process, right? She kind of hypnotizes her. Uh, she convinces her to do it. Uh, we see Hosey, you know, one of the elves being uh, born from the cocoon. It's it's all pretty, I don't know. I feel like on an instinctive level, it's uh, repulsive. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I hate to use this word, but it is, it's like a, a stew of like gross things happening. And I say yeah. stew to note the <laughs> fact that when they see the, the, the bubble burst uh, prematurely, yeah, there's all the goop in there. But really what I mean is like, it's a combination of things. Torching those things, like you kind of partially are relieved, I guess, that they're ending their lives now and not have to be turned into monsters, I, I guess. But also their children and Guts is killing them that's good and yet i feel terrible about it so it's this nice like 
conflicting emotions throughout that scene at just the horrifying nature of what these things are, how they're made, and the fact that they're being mass exterminated is just really, yeah. just really something. Right. It's freaky. And like you said, visually, yeah. when you see uh, when Puck touch, touches one, you see the slime on his finger. When there's one that bursts uh, and it's half formed, uh, yeah, it's just like even visually, it's pretty, pretty horrifying. Yeah. Gross. Uh, that's a good one. I should have yeah. thought about that one. Um, mine is from my next one is from the eclipse volume 13, episode 83 fetal movement. It's the moment. Uh, there's a lot of moments in the eclipse. You could probably just say the whole eclipse is one big spooky moment. Right. But like I said, at the start of the show, um, that's more terror. Right. But there's one in particular that I really like is, uh, there's this page where all the apostles are taunting guts. He's fallen down from the hand. He's finished fighting a few of them. And then he starts seeing his friends and comrades surrounded by him, but the remnants of them as the as the apostles are taunting guts with him. Like there's Pippin being held up by the count. Uh, it's just his torso, of course. One of them is wearing a face on their face. Uh, one of them has mouths in their heads. And my favorite, of course, is uh, hands and arms and faces on fingers as if they're being like turned into a puppet. Uh, and the other ones, one is giant one with bear arms giving five corpses like a bear hug. Like he's just hugging his friends. It's just, um, yeah, it's the, it's the mockery. It's the taunting nature of these horrifying things having happened to guts. It really shows the nature of apostles in a way They're just, they're go- being goofy with these horror, horrible things that have happened. Um, so that's, that's it for me. Right. Their humanity is so far removed that these, all these people are just food and mm-hmm. toys to them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the eclipse uh, was my top spot, and I thought about it, and I was like, "Well, I want to try to put stuff uh, that will surprise people, but at the same time, how can you go without it?" And as to the scene you mentioned, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I mean, like you said, the whole eclipse is super scary and frightening, and that's why I listed it. And I want to say there's a sense of despair. Uh, and that's one of the scenes that to me is very striking. You get at some point a two-page spread uh, of the apostles transformed who are descending on the meal, essentially. Right. There's just that word on the page, despair. And I feel like when Guts uh, sees all of his friends who have been uh, killed and who are being displayed like that, like you said, making a mockery of who they were, and the apostles are almost like children, uh, playing with the toys, you know, to me, the guy who's holding five corpses is like, hey, look, I, I managed to get five. There's five for mm-hmm. me. They're all mine. Yeah, Back exactly. Off. Like exactly. trophies, kind of. Yeah, pretty much. And, the, you know, it's also the case uh, with Casca when they're all grabbing her because it's like you could imagine them tearing her apart because they all want to have her for themselves. So it's, it's kind of like that. And uh, like you said, it's really, I feel like, you really feel as a reader the powerlessness of guts in that moment. Uh, he's seeing this, there's nothing he can do. It's, it's just in his face. Uh, it's really, really incredible emotionally. Mm. Yeah, there, that is the other one I would, I would pick from the eclipse is that moment where effectively the god hands snap their fingers and say, start eating and dig in. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Because otherwise there's a, there's a series of moments of tension as they're transforming. Even before that, as there are, you know, a raid around the horizon, you know, kind of like drawing closer effectively. Mm. Uh, and then they transform. Yeah. All of it really leads up to that moment of release. Yeah. Right. Well, we okay. definitely couldn't have a spooky list without that one. You're right. Yeah. So, Grill? Uh, the next one for me is really uh, – a big part of volume 10 after Griffith is rescued and while Griffith is being rescued, I feel like the descent into the tower of rebirth gets, gets a spot Mm -hmm. (laughs) just on the, just on the basis of being so, so, so creepy and uncomfortable and scary. And then at the bottom, you are not disappointed. The emotional moment, the creepy, you know, uh, torturer, you, you can't beat that. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to pick something that that was a little bit outside of what I think we would normally talk about, though. So I had to also give it to the Baki Raka's pursuit of the band. Um, yeah. 
I love this scene because I think we're coming up on a theme here about powerlessness or perceived powerlessness. Because while the band does triumph in this moment, I didn't know about the eclipse when I read this part, or I didn't fully know about it. So I was like, oh my God, somebody's going to die. Oh my oh, God. This is it. This die. is how he loses his comrades. That's, a, that's yeah, interesting. This is, yeah. So I was really freaked out reading this uh, because I didn't know what was going to happen. And not having that information like I do now makes this scene so much scarier. Uh, I'm jealous of this. you. I'm so jealous yeah, because cool. I saw the anime first and all that stuff is removed from it. And you experienced it the way it's meant to be experienced. And so you had that whole ride where <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. If, if anyone's going to die with the Bakirika, with Wild, with everything. And, and when the eclipse comes, it's just the uh, explosion in the sky. So I'm just so jealous of you. <laughs> Wild, Wild had me sweating bullets, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for this particular scene, I love how uh, as they're entering into the kind of underground passageway here, a tiny little droplet falls into the water in front of Guts, and he instantly realizes that someone's above them. I love that because not only does it show something really fucked up is happening with this really unusually shaped guy, like the the Bakiraka, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're so interestingly shaped that it's also a factor in the scariness here. But Guts realizes it, but you know, he can only just barely parry the, the attack and, and everything is such a close call in this fight. You know, the the guy with the trident with the, the kind of the frog face and everybody is just fighting for their absolute last breath. You know, everyone's trying their best to stay alive while the Bakiraka are fighting for their lives at the same time in a way mm. to try and fight these guys and, and uh, complete their mission. But I just find it incredibly tense and, and I like how you know, Griffith ultimately saves the day with uh, with Pippin, and uh, we kind of have that moment as well. It's a, a lot of tenderness and uh, kind of that feeling of nostalgia while also grappling with this, you know, uh, life. The, 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 the feeling like these characters' lives are absolutely on the edge of a knife here. Yeah. So I love that. I thought that was very scary when I read it. It's also mostly in the dark. That's one thing that you kind of take for granted as you're reading it because uh, you're seeing it in black and white. So often there's a lot of darkness on the screen. But, yeah, most of the fight happens in the darkness or with just very little amounts of light. Makes it spookier. A lot of darkness in this volume altogether, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I totally agree on the darkness aspect that plays a big role and the fact it's a group fight. Yeah, it's. I mean, we've said it before on the reread, but yeah, that's one of my favorite fights, if not my favorite action sequence in the whole series. I absolutely love every wow. little page. It's really very economically done. Mm-hmm. All right. So is it back to me for my number three? Yep, back to you. All right. So it's got to be Zod the Immortal in Volume 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, what to say? I think it's an incredible scene. Um by then, we've been away from Apostles and Supernatural for almost two volumes. Guts is shown to be an exceptional warrior. He's practically unmatched, save by Griffiths. And then we meet Zod. The establishment of the scene itself is crazy. We get the rumors about him uh, exchanged between the members of the, of the Falcon. Then we have the strange resistance he's posed, where the group sent in hasn't been able to get past him. And then you see Guts venture inside. And it gets worse and worse as you see corpses littered everywhere. And it culminates, of course, with that full page showing the faces of dead men. And then the fight, where despite his prodigious fighting skills, uh, Gus is just no match at all for, for Zod. And then neither is Griffiths or anyone else. Uh, I think that whole sequence is just incredible. Uh, and yeah, very, very spooky because it's Guts faced with an adversary that's just unbeatable and still unbeaten at this point in the series. So that's my, that's my pick. That's a big one. Yeah. Yes. This one was also on my list for sure. Uh, it's actually the very first one I thought of as the first one I wrote down. Uh, I also like that this whole episode starts with lightning striking. So it sets a very like yeah. dramatic and ominous exactly the foreboding sense throughout as you hear about this you know character before you see him and then you see him and it absolutely delivers 
on the rumors about the person, of course. Uh, but yeah, it's the lighting in this scene and the slow creeping dread on Gut's face as he gets closer and closer to it uh, that really sell it. And yeah, I, yeah, absolutely is. To me, it's the number one for me. Uh, creepy scene in Berserk because it's just layered up and it's just, there is a sense of suspense throughout the whole scene. Mm-hmm. And it's also cool. incredible that Guts is scared. Like you almost mm-hmm. never see him scared. And when you see him scared, it means like shit's getting real. Yeah. What's happening is outside of his comprehension up to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His first apostle. That's so crazy to think about. <laughs> just given. Baby's uh, first apostle, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and for that to be his first is just funny. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, of all of them. Crazy. Wild was really a step down after that. <laughs> well, that's why he could kill him. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's also interesting, I mean, the fact, one thing I've always loved, and might even be my favorite thing in the Golden Age arc, uh, which is saying something, is when he's fighting Boscone, and he, like, he's really not despairing, but uh, he's got his back to the wall, and then he thinks back to when he fought Zod, and he's like, oh, it's... At least it's not as bad as this time. And it, that mm-hmm. hurts him. He's like, I can't do it because at least it's not as bad as Zod. And I always thought that was quite incredible um, of Mura to, to, to do that. I know it feels so realistic to me. Just yeah. for him to say, at least it's not as bad as this. Because that's how we think in life. Like, yeah. Oh, man, this situation sucks. Oh, it's not as bad as it's this time. Yeah. Well, I also worse. just think it's... It's just a cool idea that the encounter itself prepared him mentally for what was to come. So yeah. I just think it's just a cool idea. Yeah, and the same goes for Wiles. That's kind of what I was uh, getting at, is that God's trained and fought and everything, partly because he knew these kinds of monsters ex- existed in the world and that he might encounter another one uh, later on. So I feel like that, that also plays a part in preparing him for Wild and even for the Eclipse in a way. Mm-hmm. So back over to me, um, I will pick volume 20, episode 163. It's Shadow of Idea 1. Mm-hmm. It's the Incarnation Family Feast. Oh, uh, the Incarnation has started. Uh, the brand is, I think it's not yet visible to Guts, but it's out there. And we start to see um, all the horrors around that encampment, around the Tower of Albion. Tower, Tower of, what a shit, which one is it? It's not Rebirth. <laughs> It is uh, conviction. Tower of conviction. Conviction, yeah. Yeah. That one. Yeah. So in this particular scene, what I'm referring to is, of course, um, I think we actually see them before the transformation happened, before they became possessed. And then we see them after. It's a family, you know, young kid, older mom. uh, And when we cut to them next, uh, at first they're huddled around the oncoming masses. And then we cut to them later and we see that they're devouring the kid. You know, and the, their entrails are just being pulled from, you know, their stomach, their teeth outward. Uh, and, and they have horrifying expressions. And I think they're breaking the fourth wall as too. That is to say, they're looking at the reader, I'm pretty sure. Just from memory. Uh, yeah, that's one. Because he dialed it up to 11 for that particular page. Uh, it, it really sells uh, in a micro way what's happening on a macro level around that whole vicinity. Yeah. So he picked one particular slice of life moment. And then you can imagine what else is happening around the whole area. So, very effective and creepy. Very effective. Ugh. Yeah, it is wow. exceptionally creepy as that scene with a kid. Wow. Gross. Yeah, very gross. <laughs> yeah, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but I can envision it pretty well. I've seen it many times over the past 20-something years. So, yeah. yeah. Same. It's funny. I like. I haven't looked at it, but I close my eyes. I can see it so, so well. It's uh, It's very effective. And that whole sequence, I feel like uh, I didn't write it down and I didn't even think of it. But when you see the tower fall and all those mega specters uh, devouring, dissolving the corpses and everything, the, the whole sequence yeah. is crazy. That was my top pick. You got it. Oh, you stepped oh. on it. You sucked my battleship. Sorry about that. But <laughs> it's okay. I'll, I'll keep I'm quiet. I'm glad you thought of it. <laughs> We can talk about it again because... It didn't, uh, didn't happen. didn't happen. didn't happen. Yeah, I even didn't think of it. It's Walter who reminded me of it, so... Uh, yeah, my fault. I see how I'll, it is. I'll shut up. That's it for oh. me. That was the Incarnation Family Feast. That's a good one. Uh, I guess I'm next. Yeah, go for it. My my second 
top pick was uh, when Farnese, it's a fairly recent one, Farnese and Shirke going to rescue Casca's mind mm-hmm. in her unconscious. Uh, I love this part. Just overall, I feel like it's very, again, foreboding, full of dread, because we as the reader know that, of course, they're, they're, they're going to make it out somehow with Casca intact, but w- at what price, you know? And uh, I love the imagery. I love the sense of building up through memories and, and finally getting to the eclipse at the culmination of the Tower of Vi- of uh, Thorns. And it's it's just so beautifully done. And while it is also very exciting as a reader, because we've been, we had been anticipating this for so long, uh, I really just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge how creepy and scary it is with the, you know, the phallic imagery, the monsters, the gorilla monsters really creep me out on a visceral <laughs> level that's hard to explain. But just, it's the nature of the monster design is so unsettling in that part that I think it really hammers home just how, you know, what's been lurking beneath the surface with Casca for all this time. Mm. Uh, what, additionally, what bothers me about it is how the the first layer of of the journey is this kind of child's drawing and how once you dig deeper and deeper and deeper it gets worse and worse and worse and becomes even more disturbing and just the fact that Farnesing a and Shirke have to grapple with that as they go is is tough for me as a fan <laughs> yeah it's it's funny i um I thought of that it was on my bigger list, and then I didn't retain it, and I was like, I really hope uh, either Grey or, or Walter keep it, because it's so great. And specifically for me, the forest of corpses and thorny cedars is the absolute, I mean, that's one of the most horrifying moments in the series. And like you said, like the scenery itself, the fight, you know, every tree or plant is like a thorn, which is very symbolic, the phallic monsters, which all of them are crazy, and even the the giant falcon at the end, it's still kind of a phallus with a you know, dart at the end. So even that, Mura managed to combine the imagery of, uh, of, of the falcon with that phallic imagery. And I just find it, I mean, it's just uh, definitely among the top, most horrifying, frightening, dreadful moments of the series. I really appreciate, um, I remember we've talked about this throughout these podcasts leading up to that moment in the, in the series about, we were all excited about what the dream world would be like, you know, going into Casca's mind to restore her brain, her brain, her, her, who she is. Um, you know, Miura could have done that pastiche kind of thing that he did initially where we saw Shirke's, uh, self or brain, brain. I keep saying brain, um, mind, mind. Thank you. Uh, we saw, then we saw Farnese's, and you'd think that if they go further, there'll be a series of little moments. And storytelling-wise, if you're dealing with a human mind, you can just have a series of different moments, and then that's it. But instead, he created a sense of place, and you can you can be you can feel that sense of place throughout each episode, even though they're seeing and experiencing different things and different different moments. That desolate landscape and that the windy, you know, gloomy, gray place is so very real throughout that whole self series of volumes. So, I really appreciated that he actually did establish a unique sense or feeling in those instead of just what would be a pastiche of different moments of different like crazy things yeah, yeah. i like i like the dream logic of it too where for example at the beginning you see those t- thorns flags on poles being yep. battered by the wind and then they transform into monsters that attack them and uh it's it's kept throughout the, that little moment well that moment is not so little uh the kind of weird ass logic that's uh typical of dreams Mm-hmm. It looks like a bat, so it must be a bat, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Good pick. Thanks. Uh, Over to you, Azil. Yeah. So my um, second to last one was uh, Clifford, volume 25 and 26. And I hesitated to put it in because we talked about it on, uh, on the reread recently. But I thought, well, what the hell? It is a crazy crazy scenery uh, with absolutely grotesque creatures that aren't so much a direct danger to our characters as they are just purely revolting uh, when you see them on the swamp and everything. And of course, it's followed up by the Trolls Cave, 
which shows us the worst side of this pest. Uh, of course, other than their ravenous uh, and unending appetite. But uh, yeah, their, their, their drive seems to be reproduction, which they do through rape. And because they are parasitic creatures, their offspring are born by bursting out of the victim's stomach, uh, which we see in a scene with uh, Hannah that I think is uh, more than rivals the original Alien movie. So just that whole sequence of the forest turning uh, Eldritch, then those crazy monsters, uh, then the trolls and the rape and the, the birth. Uh, to me, definitely into the, the top uh, most uh, crazy and terrifying scene in the series. It's yeah, it's it very fresh to us because we did just finish talking about it, but it's absolutely valid because I also wrote it down. Uh, mm-hmm. Specifically, oh, the one that I would write. I mean, Cliff Oth itself, naturally, it's a natural pick. It's it's the creepiest environment in the series, no doubt yeah, about it. But for, sure. um, mm-hmm. for me, the number one uh, where I would really highlight is uh, it's in 216. It's when Farnese and Casca have just woken up and they realize their surroundings and it's the mushrooms growing out of the eyes that are themselves living creatures. That's the one for me. Yeah. <laughs> That's the moment where it's just like, oh, you really thought about this. And this is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. There's yeah, that so whole, many. <laughs> there's like a, yeah, there's, it's the first page of 216. Uh, yeah. And there are just basically faces on things that absolutely have no place having a face. It shouldn't have a face. <laughs> <laughs> the fingers cradling the arms. But yeah, then later we see it's like the mushrooms um, growing out of the faces. That's what it is for me. That does I it for me. I feel like that's a great summary of Mira's monster design philosophy. That shouldn't have a face. Yeah, that should. <laughs> mm. I remember on the podcast we even said, like, it's the mushrooms growing out of faces. I'm imagining Mira coming up with the idea for that. Like, hmm, he must have been walking around a park on a pleasant day and then saw some mushrooms. Oh, I wonder if that could grow out of a, of a corpse. It probably could. I'll write that down for the future. Yeah, put it in his sketchbook and the How rest is history. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess that counts for one of mine. I don't mind, I don't mind picking another one because I'm, I'm just building off of yours. I'll, I'll go with my next one unless anyone else has Cliffeth stuff they wanted to say. No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so I only have one more, I believe one, two, three. Yeah. Cause I got two of them were stepped on. Uh, the last one for me, that is anyway, is, uh, the demon tiger in Vertanis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that one page. It's the two page spread of the tiger in very close proximity to the group of festive ball goers who just moments before were partying down in this luxurious ball. Uh, so confident in how safe they were. And then the lights go out and the fog approaches and suddenly they're face to face with a massive tiger that has just finished uh, disemboweling some one of their friends. Uh, and it's the visuals though. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm describing the context for how those characters would have experienced this moment, but it's just the pure visuals of it. It's a very hardcore image. It's the, it's the, it's the single source lighting of the candles or the candelabra. I suppose he's holding, uh, and it makes this like really sharp, dark and white contrast on the fur of the of the tiger as it's been exposed as devouring a a ball goer. And then their expressions on their faces, their horrified, oh, God, expressions on their faces. And again, the proximity of being so close to something like that is what really does it. Back in the day, this this uh, panel got a lot of coloration attention. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking of CNCs. In my head, I always see CNCs color of it. Right. Yeah, that scene uh, always struck me as being straight out of a horror story. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like you said, it really it's like these normal people having their ball and their old safety, and then the fog comes. And out of the fog, a monster bursts through, and then it's just like the mood changes instantly. And again, uh, like we mentioned earlier, the fact it's a blackened page. Uh, really shows that uh, switch uh, in the mood. And yep. it doesn't go full horror after that because Serpico saves the dance and there's uh, Guts and even Farnese uh, fights back. But uh, yeah, that specific two-page spread is just beautiful and definitely I also considered it uh, for my list. So I'm really glad you picked it because I love it. Yep. Yeah. For sure. It's really the whole episode uh, is, is like does all these things, but it's more of an action sequence and a little bit of suspense leading up to that reveal. But it, it's that moment for me. That's that's really encapsulates it. 
Is mine the last one? Oh my! I God. think Azil has a more in his pocket. Yeah, I, I, I've, got, I've got some more, but uh, that's your turn, Grail. Okay. Well, my number one pick is the destruction of the Tower of Conviction. That whole section really rattles my boots and sends chills down my spine. Uh, we kind of touched on the whole concept earlier, but just the idea that humanity is so insignificant in the eyes of, of these events. Uh, just the stuff that happens, the the ghost blobs devouring everything, crawling up the tower... Uh, a big one for me is when uh, near near to the beginning when the heretic the heretics become kind of incensed and possessed and one of them bites off the face of a of a knight. Mm-hmm. It's just stuff like that. Just really fucks with me. <laughs> and this whole section made me feel so viscerally uncomfortable with how you know literally humanity is just nothing in the face of this sort of destruction and it's beyond human comprehension. And how it's all leading up to this huge crescendo and, and this big epic moment. But the, the stuff leading up to it is truly terrible. And the, the stuff in the encampment with the kid getting eaten is just horrible <laughs> to watch. And how it's been building up and building up, like with the uh, with the possessed bodies earlier who were, you know, filled with anguish and, and hatred. And this whole area is just poisoned with hatred and, and fear and terror and how it's culminating in this... Uh, just explosion mm-hmm. of despair and terror is as a reader i've never read anything like it in my life i always felt uh, go ahead so oh uh, i was just gonna kind of cu- kind of cap it off and say that i feel like this is what berserk in a lot of ways is all about it's this feeling of existential dread on a level that is so massive it, it's it's hard to describe to somebody who hasn't read it I was going to say, I always felt like um, this was an implosion. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it feels like everything falls down on itself. And of course, that's because the, fall, the tower itself falls. Uh, and, and then, you know, nothing's left. It, everything's obliterated. There's almost no survivors. It was a huge thing with all the encampments and everything. And, and afterwards, nothing's left. Uh, yeah. And even as Crazy. the tower falls... You actually aren't sure, like, it re- literally falls on top of all uh, characters, right? So it's, uh, I feel like even for the character survival, there's actually some, some dread uh, in there. Yeah, yeah, even though they did survive, it's like, what now? How do you move forward after, especially Farnese and Serpico and Azen? Like, how do they, how do they, what's their next move after something so, you know, life-alteringly crazy just happened? Yeah. So I'm looking at uh, there is a there is a particular two page spread at this moment that you're referring to. You're referring to the whole aftermath of the incarnation ceremony and the the movement of the mega specters. It's the two page spread for me where you sh- sees the freshly devoured, I guess, decomposed. The decomposed is the wrong word. It's like acid, right? Acid yeah. melting through human skin, and you see the remains of the muscles and the nerves uh, on the bone slash muscle uh, mm-hmm. uh, b- uh, bodies. Yeah. It's pretty unique, and I would bet, and I could be wrong, it's it's many people's expo- first exposure to such anatomy kind of things. It's the kind of thing you see a lot in, in biology books and physiology books, yeah. but not in a comic book. Uh, not not often, really. So, yeah, pretty pretty impressive. And also, I like how this moment builds up, because you see the effect of the bodies inside the megaspectors, and then it has this three-panel thing where it shows them, uh, what's the word, encircling a crowd of people. And then they get closer and closer until they're gone. And then right. the implication is, of course, and that happened to all those people too. So it just it's the scale and the the individual horror they can inflict, uh, you know, executed at scale is what makes it obviously right just it, crazy, crazy, absolutely. And uh, another thing that that you just made me think of is how a lot of these people have nowhere else to go, and that's why they're there. So they were refugees. Um, at first, and now they're trapped in this insane situation. It's like they they had no. What other option did they have mm-hmm. but for this fate? So yeah, they were yeah. here for safety, from right. the, uh, running away from the Kushans. Yeah, and so they're hoping that you know God will save them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, technically, uh, he ended their suffering. 
<laughs> yeah. That's that's one that's one way to look at it for sure. Uh, not uh, <laughs> but just yeah, yeah the, the despair is terrible. Hmm. There's another horrifying moment that happens in this scene. This is when Azan is uh you know holding them telling them not to uh, not to close the gates. Um and in the in the uh, 2017 anime version of this uh his hair disappears for a couple uh frames. Now that's without, scary. Without explanation, then it comes back later. <laughs> so that was terrifying hair. to me is Someone dealing with the onset of male pattern baldness. I'm actually okay, but I can I can imagine that'd be pretty scary for Azan too. He's yeah. still hanging on to what he's got. Now the fact they do close a gate, and that he realizes uh, people have just how to say turns their backs on on those outside. Oh, of course. And his yeah. Own, his own despair is pretty. Yeah, that's pretty harrowing. I at that point at that moment I felt like I really felt for his character because he's a he's depicted as a really earnest character. He's like the honorable knight. He embodies mm-hmm. the honorable knight, and he's like the only character in the entire series who does. Uh, and to see that betrayal, uh, I, I mean, I I really could feel what he was feeling at that point. Another touch of realism. Yeah. Yeah, the the look on the people's faces on the other side yeah. of the gate yeah. is really yeah. I mean, I love I love Azil as well. You love me as well. Awesome. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful. I love Azan too. I love Azan. Too. <laughs> I love, <Azan>. <laughs> <laughs> love you too, man. I didn't realize what I'd said until you laughed, and I was well, like, oh, yeah, I, I, I love you, Azil. I, yes, I we should you. we should be coming out as a. Oh come on! It doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> It's platonic. Um, <laughs> Frank, Frank. I don't have any more, so it's back over to you, my love. Uh, oh my god! All right, let's <laughs> let's get it. Let's get it short because it's turning uh, horrifying uh, real quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, actually, so my my top spot, my top pick was the the eclipse. Um, okay. And, I mean, what is there even to say? Uh, the, the exhibition describes it as a nightmare class event, and that's what it is. But since we've already covered it. I'm going to fall back to one of my other picks, and I have like eight more. Well, so. hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. All right. You can't just say the eclipse. It's That spans uh, a volume and a half of content. So, like, pick your moment. Like, what would be the moment for you? Well, uh, I kind of touched uh, upon it earlier. There's that two-page spread with despair. Yep. There's a Cascas capture. There's a fact when you see that she's still uh, intact, Uh like the, the apostle is holding her uh, up. He's about to like uh, transpierce her with his head. And so you're like, okay, she's not like, she's still okay. Mostly. Uh, even though she's naked and, you know, she's bleeding and stuff like that. And then he stops and you're like, okay, well, she's, she's still okay. And then Femto is born. And then mm-hmm. there's that, you know, harrowing rape. Uh, that, that's unbearable because it lasts so long and which really makes you feel powerless like guts and that, that tops the whole scene. So, uh, there's those parts. One part that's maybe a, a really small thing, but when Femto is born, uh, when he emerges from the, the egg, his, uh, the eyes of the helmet are closed like a, a baby bird being hatched. Uh, and, and, you know, when you see him in volume three, uh, it's just a helmet. It feels like decorative. And because that's just a helmet Griffith has been wearing throughout the whole series, you don't really think about it. But the fact Mira did that to show that it's, uh, an organic part of him, it's part of his face, actually. And the human face inside is just, it's, it's not, that's not just his face with a helmet. That's a whole thing. Uh, I think that's also really quite, um, it's not right. You know what I mean? Like you can feel yeah. it inside. Unsettling. Yeah, it's just, it's not right. So yeah. that would be, yeah, that, that would be amazing. But That's a really good point. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Thank you. Well, we've talked about the, the God Hand before we described them. You can imagine that parts of them are fleshy and parts of them are probably more like chitin or like yeah. that uh, insect type material. Mm. Like armor on an insect uh, as well. And yeah, that's a moment where you realize it's all quote unquote organic, um, <laughs> organically grown God hand. Oh, um, yeah. Farm raised. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's I was going to say, I'm going to pick another one. 
But right. which one to choose? There's so many. So I'm going to go with uh, Rickert because we haven't talked about him. And then there's two of them with Rickert, but I'm going to go about uh, with a pandemonium. Uh, when he goes to Falconia and he w- wants to, to see Griffiths, uh, he's taken by Locus away from Owen, conveniently, and, uh, he takes him to the Pandemonium, uh, where the apostles are kept to show him that Griffiths is not who he used to know and that now uh, he shouldn't be making trouble which actually uh, does not work <laughs> to his great anger. But yeah, <laughs> that whole scene. First, Locus himself is already ominous presence. Uh, we see it with Mule when he's first introduced. He's like, you know, the really typical apostle who is trying to look proper, but you can feel he's a monster. So uh, very unusual and, and very, very powerful presence. And that already is intimidating. But then they cross that bridge and it goes from the white and bright and luminous Falconia to darkness uh, and fog and, and uh, uh, strange and dreadful stuff immediately. Then there's that horrible gate that's deformed and melted and feels like it has a horrible history behind it that we don't know. And inside that, it's just a monsters uh, watching a, a gladiator's fight. Uh, with uh, Volkov killing an ogre, and and Rickert is truly terrified at this. And Locus, of course, uh, you know, enjoys the, the his reaction and tells him about uh, about things. So I, I feel like that scene is very very powerful as well because it's Rickert being exposed to what it's like to be surrounded by apostles. Yeah, I don't know what you guys mm. think about it. Well, I think, you know, Rickert had a prior exposure with Apostles and it was terrifying in its own right. True. And now he sees that Griffith has these monsters, you know, supposedly under his thumb. But really, he's become uh, in their ranks. You know, he's now part of their of their ranks. I think mm-hmm. that's part of what does it for Rickert as well. Uh, it's not just the horror of them. It's also what happened to his friend and how his friend is now a leader of the monsters. It's probably also what is scary for him, I would yep. imagine. Yeah, that's a great pick, as I honestly I had a harder time thinking of more recent stuff. Same. So that's that's an awesome one. Um, yeah, pandemonium to me, I can't think about it now uh, and not just feel like a weight in my body. Uh, it's like it will never go away because I really, really wanted to see beyond those doors a little bit more. I really wanted to see that dome, what that dome was all about. Uh, and so yeah. when I hear the word pandemonium, I just get. Really bummed out, to be honest. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, it, what little we saw and the door itself is, are striking and super memorable for sure. Yeah, yeah. I actually thought you would pick it, uh, Walter, but I understand why you. Did. Yeah, I don't. I don't associate it with spookiness. Uh, I guess. I guess. Yeah, there's dread. Absolutely. I'm not trying to. Um, what's the word? Disavow your pick. I'm saying personally, I don't think mm. about it as spooky. But uh, yeah, definitely has some terror moments. Well, the other one I was also considering, which you you hinted at, is uh, of course Rickard's encounter with uh, the yeah. Count and Roshin. Uh, yeah, and that also, I mean, that one. I guess that one you can't say it's not spooky because it, it is not at all. That one qualifies. Yeah, and actually, oh, and it's another moment where it was not immediately clear how he would extricate himself from it, and then Skull Knight appears, and then it, you know, obviously, we know what happens after that. Yeah, and what's interesting is that. I mean, Rickard could have absolutely died at that point. It's it's mm-hmm. a, just a choice Mira Mira made to keep him alive while the other died. But uh, it's just so interesting that it's really his life's uh, hanging by a thread, and the Skull Knight saves him, and that's it. But it really could have gone uh, uh, very differently. Yeah, Rickard's had a couple of close calls, I guess. Yeah. I guess that's the end of our Halloween spooktacular episode. I wish we'd done this before. This is pretty fun. Just like talking, uh, shooting the shit about random scenes yeah. and having Ooh. a moment to just talk about how who's awesome a, they were. idea was it? It was your idea, for mm-hmm. sure. No question well, about it. Congratulations. Mine would have been way more academic and boring, uh, but nonetheless good. But uh, this is great. This was, this was <laughs> way more fun than mine. So that's awesome. Nice. Great. Well, that's that's it for everybody on the show, and that's all. It, that's everything for the content. But I do hope uh, you go check out our Patreon at patreon.com/sknet, 
Azil and Puella have contributed a bunch of new posts over the past month. If you haven't checked them out, please do. Among those updates are uh, the Persona trans- to the translation of the Persona Developers Interview Part Three, and a bunch of new stuff in translation. Um, I'm not sure if I'm missing anything, but I really like the Witch one that you did recently, mm-hmm. uh, where they're learning Japanese with Berserk. Uh, but yeah, I really appreciate those updates. Please check them out if you have not already. Uh, our gold members are really helping out uh, by donating the most of all the people on the Patreon. So I wanted to give each of those a shout out. And they start with uh, Piran, M, Spacey Louse, Rombad, Darklink, Dirtiest M, Walter, Modal Eternal, Thomas Lambert, Milbs, Jason, Asmer, and Guts. Thank you, everybody, for contributing. You're helping making this happen. Thank you, guys. And that's it for the show. Uh, we'll be back in another month to talk about, I suppose, uh, we'll do volume 27, part one. Uh, yeah, I should have said this at the outside of the show, but what we'd like to do uh, moving forward is between our volume rereads, that is to say, when we complete a volume, we'll do one uh, different kind of episode, maybe even two different kind of episodes before we jump into the uh, never-ending train that is the volume reread project. Mm-hmm. To keep it fun. So that's it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be back in a month. Bye, guys. See ya.